I've been asked to talk to you about truth. Small topic. Um, it's a complex thing. Um, by the way, just stay in that space um, where you were just there. It's, um, it's the best place to be. Um, so truth is a, is a huge, huge topic. Um, and I was asked about a couple of months to do it, a couple of months ago to do it. I'm going to kind of go around here so that at some point the people who are behind this but uh, this uh, pillar will actually get to see me at some point, so you're not, like, everybody's constantly stuck. Ooh, shops. Hi, guys. Um, and um, it's really difficult to try and wrap your head around it because it's so big. So I spent the last two months really just trying to figure out how to approach it. I'm a, I'm a lecturer in um, a college, and one of the things that I teach is academic writing. And anybody who's ever written an essay for a college or university degree knows that scope and the angle that you approach something is sort of the first thing that you want to figure out. Um, so I started looking around at like, you know, um, the modern thing to do, tweet-sized one-liners that tell you what you can do with truth um, and definitions of truth. Uh, and um, some of the interesting ideas that I found were by a guy called uh, Czeslav Miłosz, um, who was a Polish... Um, uh, civil rights fighter uh, during the Soviet Union and fought for sort of Polish independence and also against sort of human rights atrocities that Soviet Union was committing at the time. And one of the things that he said was, in a room where people un unanimously maintain a conspiracy of silence, one word of truth sounds like a pistol shot. Um, Oscar Wilde, uh, the famous Irish um, author and playwright, said, truth is rarely pure and never simple. Um, it takes a long time to figure out what to work through. Psalm 25.5 says, Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. So there's a lot of ways you can take an angle at truth. Um, so what I want to kind of spend a little bit of time thinking about is because this is in part of the series that we're looking at in terms of the values of Hope Church, and last week Phil gave this great talk on legacy, and this kind of sits into that. So if you want to contextualize what I'm going to be talking about, listen to Phil's talk yeah, uh, last week. And um, truth is intrinsically related and connected to legacy. Um, to understand the truth that you've been given from a previous generation, and to understand the truth that you can pass on to the next one, is a fundamental aspect of legacy. Um, which is why it kind of lives in this part. So I want to look at our relationship with truth. And probably one of the most important questions, I think, to ask in the modern age is how do you measure what is true? Um, well, that's a difficult cookie. Um, so I'm going to take you a little bit on a history of how people have thought about measuring truth. Um, because there's lots of different approaches. So we'll start there. Uh, quick tour throughout world history. I say the world, it's probably mostly Eurocentric, so just, just saying. Um, so let's begin with many, many thousands of years ago, the Old Testament. Um, so in the Old Testament, you had your classic setup. You had your priests, and you had your prophets. Uh, Moses, in Exodus 35:25 went up to a hill, uh, was sent up to the hill in Deuteronomy by uh, the Israelites. 
go up for yourself because we're absolutely terrified of this God character um, and speak to him on our behalf. He comes down the hill, he's got his, um, in Exodus, then he has his uh, stone plaques and he reads to them the Ten Commandments and all the laws, all the truths that God has given to him. And the people need to listen to the singular intermediary who has the revelation. Um, so he's got the concepts. He's got the ideas. And the general crowd doesn't have that same level of access to truth. They don't have that same level of access to God. Moses had to veil his face in Exodus 35:25 because he had such an unusual connection to God and to truth to such a degree that the other people couldn't cope with it when they looked at his face. The distinction between the one man, the prophet, later on in the Old Testament, we see the same setup, uh, Samuel, and, um, you know, we've been reading through the Bible at the moment, and you'll um, be familiar with many of the Old Testament stories where singular priests and singular prophets have this kernel and this revelation of truth and knowledge that they then need to impart to everybody else. But it doesn't stay that way. In the New Testament, suddenly there's a grace bestowed on all. Everybody has equal access to Jesus. Everybody has equal access to God. Um, Everybody can go up the mountain now and talk to the power in the clouds. And in Titus 2.11 says that the grace of God is revealed to all men. Everybody has that revelation. So suddenly, um, there's almost like a democratizing of access to knowledge, access to truth that people get to experience in the New Testament. Um, The priests or prophets um, aren't the only people anymore. You don't need to have your intermediary who will be able to have that full revelation. But the problem is... That transition wasn't the smoothest in church history. Um, This idea that somehow there isn't any more one person, one group of people that have a secret access to truth and that nobody else has. Key example, if we move a few few hundred years on, is the Spanish Inquisition. Um, If you disagree with us, we will burn you and kill you. Uh, and we are right, you are wrong, and again, don't disagree with us. Um, there's a crooked system. Access to knowledge was reduced so that a select group of people could have more power than others. Um, but also to ensure that there was a streamlining of what was considered true and what was considered false. So despite the fact that the New Testament declares that actually everybody has an equal access to, to truth and to knowledge, um, there's now this reinvigorating of this concept that actually no, it is your, your betters and um, again, a reinstating of the pharisaical system and the priest system where um, terrifyingly it's a question of life and death of whether you agree with them. There's a beautiful story about um, a... Mexican nun called, uh, I'll probably butcher the the pronunciation of this, but Juana Inez de la Cruz. And um, she was a poet and um, an author. 
and the Spanish bishop um, who was overseeing the auspices in Mexico in that place um, essentially uh, said this is a ridiculous thing, one, for a woman to do, and secondly, most importantly, for a nun. Um, so uh, at the risk of her own life, she stood up against that sort of desire to control knowledge and power and truth. And there's stories throughout the um, Middle Ages and throughout that whole period where they're incredible human beings. And that's part of that legacy that Phil was talking about uh, last week, where there are, despite the fact that the overarching systems seem crooked, there are individual stories of absolutely beautiful grace of God that I'd really encourage you to check out. Um, 1 John 4 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit to see whether they are from God. So, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. That word spirit, obviously, doesn't... We're always in danger in the West, I think, of intellectualizing that and just talking about ideas. But spirits are also spiritual strongholds, angels and demons and that sort of thing. Um, so it's important not to just say, oh, he's talking about ideas. No, he's not just talking about ideas. Um, he is also talking about spiritual aspects of this, but um, the Bible does commend us to question people. We're not supposed to just take the Spanish Inquisition at its word. That would be a problem if we did that. Um, so we want to make sure that we do test things and we do talk about things. And this idea of testing was this next stage of um, history that you have when you assess and evaluate truth. And this crooked system of the Dark Ages and the Medieval Ages was starting to be replaced by um, what would later be known as the Renaissance, then the Enlightenment, and the Reformation. Um, and what essentially that culminated in was that scientific rationalism. You can rationalize something through logical progression, through uh, studying something, evaluating it, and seeing whether it's a repeatable pattern, determining is that true or not. And using that method to evaluate and assess whether something is trustworthy, whether it is true, accurate. Um, so, Renaissance, Reformation, Enlightenment dictated that the measure of truth and the way you measure truth was through either science or science married with the Bible. Um, later on, as um, what this is described as modernism, Later on, the Bible part kind of became secondary. Um, and um, science very much took over. The uh, famous cultural theorist describes the Enlightenment like this. Enlight uh, Theodore Adorno was the man. Enlightenment, understood in the widest sense as the advance of thought, has always aimed at liberating human beings from fear and installing them as master. So... I am no longer under the control of somebody who's manipulative, like the Spanish Inquisition. I'm going to take control of my own life. I will take control and be master and reign over my own ideas of truth. I will study the Bible in my own language and not by the language of Latin, which only the priest can understand. Um, I will take my own responsibility and be my own master. And that's what that whole process of the Enlightenment is supposed to ensure. Um, now, a lot of people thought this is going to be a utopia. This is going to take me to a beautiful place. We're going to figure out through science and through these whole processes, we will learn um, how to harmoniously live together because the truth sets us free. 
Unfortunately, what happened was the First and the Second World War. And suddenly people started to realize that science didn't just produce happiness. It produced this huge destructive period of four or five years and then another period of four or five years. Some people consider it a blip. Some historians will say, no, 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 let's not abandon rationalism. Let's not abandon this modernist ideal of becoming our own masters through science. But others would say, well, something like Nazism is actually the rational conclusion of rationalism. Cold-hearted, cold-blooded mathematical decision-making um, is what often was demonstrated in the concentration camps during the Nazi era. And where you kind of sit on that, in terms of historical terms, most pe many, a huge amount of people just said, well, look, you're either going to have a crooked system with the Spanish Inquisition, or you're going to have a broken system with science, so let's get rid of systems entirely. Systems are a problem. Overarching systems that tell us what to do are a problem. What you can trust is yourself. What you can trust is what you see and what you hear. So, postmodernism is born, which is very much where we live today. Um, let's get rid of the system, or the way that Phil talked about it last week, let's get rid of the overarching story. Um, so things like Marxism, let's get rid of that. Things like Nazism, let's get rid of that. And also things like Christianity, let's get rid of that. These overarching systems, these overarching stories, let's remove them, get them away. And, you know, the church traditionally, when I've heard talk about postmodernism and relativism that comes along with it, um, has denounced it, um, which I'll come to why that's valid later on. But I do want to just linger on this point that actually there's a humility that comes with it. Accepting the fact that I don't know everything, that actually I need you to tell me what you think so we can kind of try and figure this thing out together, is, in a is very healthy in a lot of ways. The problem is, if there is no consensus, if we don't agree, but at the end of the day is, well, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, let's go our separate ways. If everybody does this, you don't have a very constructive society. Step onto the stage, fake news. So... In case you haven't heard of this, fake news is essentially this idea that um, everybody has an agenda, everybody's trying to sell you something, so when you are told a story by the news, or you're told um, a scientific theory, or you're told anything by an authority figure, uh, don't trust them because they've got an agenda. So every single thing can be labeled as untrustworthy, except, of course, what you think. Um, so a way of describing it is a gradual deconstruction of every authority of knowledge. Every authority that would tell you what is true is gradually deconstructed. So one of the things that you've seen over the last few years, bankers who are generally always considered to be knowledgeable and trustworthy in terms of money, nobody trusts them anymore. Um, scientists, um, 
there's huge amounts of people who will tell you, nope, the world is flat, it's not round. Um, there's uh, other ideas that are gaining traction of that ilk. Um, politicians, whatever a politician will tell you, no, you can't trust what a politician will say, and so on and so forth. So all of this stuff becomes very, very difficult to actually build a constructive society around, a community, if nobody believes the other person, if nobody trusts each other, and if the only thing you trust is your own truth. So that is kind of where we're at today, and that is, as I say, truth is a massive topic. If you've done any study in this yourself, you'll probably go like, but Simon, you missed this point, and I'm sure I did, because it's mahusive. So uh, please do feel very, very free to tell me if I missed something. Thank you very much. Um, so what do we do with this? You can become quite miserable and you can become quite depressed and nihilistic about this whole approach, which is where a lot of people park themselves. And you're like, great, I'm done. Um, let's go to the pub. Um, so, but I don't think that is where God wants us to park ourselves. Um, so I'm going to take you to what I believe to be a very helpful guide to truth, the Bible. Bum, bum, bum. And I'm going to take you somewhere that might be coming a little bit out of left field. 1 Corinthians 13. That classic chapter that you hear at weddings. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burnt, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And this is the important part. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. A very odd connection to establish here by Paul to say that I will know fully when I am fully known. It's an interesting play of words in the English, but it correlates relationship with truth. It correlates intimacy with knowledge, which very few of these previous ideologies that we've talked about there 
go into, save one. And that was in the New Testament. Because we believe that there is an objective truth. We believe that that objective truth is called God. Um, I think history does show to us that it's very hard to make bold claims about that he is definitively objective truth. If, um, so how do we go and find it? How do we figure it out? In 1 Corinthians 13, knowledge of truth is cushioned in love. My ability to find truth is dependent on my capacity to be connected with others and God. So actually, the pursuit of truth is fundamental to my pursuit of connection, which does make sense, seeing as as human beings, our main drive is a desire for connection. If the Spanish Inquisition was a crooked system, and if modernism is a system built on rationalism and postmodernism is getting rid of systems entirely, I would like to suggest that the Bible encourages us to build on a system of love. That a phrase that I've come to quite enjoy states that truth isn't relative, that it's relational. A system that's built on love and a system that's built on the story of love, the grand narrative of love. That there is a God who is pursuing us and who loves us. When I went to France a wee while back, um, I um, was going as part of a, a team, a missions team, where we were helping out a church in France. And um, I was chatting to Jenny Winsley, who's a bit of a powerhouse of a prophetic gift to this church. And um, she started to explain to me how the rivers in the town that we were in and the buildings were telling her something about the prophetic landscape of the town and where certain uh, spiritual strongholds existed and stuff like that. Now, I like... Um, as you may have noticed, logical things, rational things, things that I can kind of think through. This is kind of difficult to wrap my head around. This idea of, you know, there's a church there and there's a river here, so that tells me that, that there might be like a, uh, that there's like a spiritual thoroughfare of angels that are traveling through this area, and I'm like, oh, yay. Um, now, I could very easily, from my own background and from my own understanding of what I perceive to be right and wrong, dismiss that entirely. But I didn't. Not because I had some great revelation, but because Jenny Winsley is my friend. And I trust my friend. And I will listen to my friend because I value what she has to say. Um, and as I was mentioning, one of the biggest problems that we have in terms of transmitting truth to each other in this modern age is trust. People don't trust things that are telling them what's right and wrong. But if we can build relationships where we trust each other's integrity, we trust each other's character, we trust each other's desire to be on each other's side, we, in short, honor one another, 
we start getting to a position where we can trust and we can learn from one another. And suddenly, things that I felt were ridiculous and that I uh, was suspicious and skeptical about, I'm willing to listen to because I'm engaging with it in the context of friendship and in the context of trust. Um, love is the system that dictates what operates in truth. Truth isn't, sim- thank you. Uh, truth isn't simply a stubborn absolute nor relative. It is relational. Um, connecting with the Bible isn't just an individual process of reading, which it is, but it's also a process of going through it together who have very different gifts. I think one of the reasons why we have different gifts of the spirit, the prophetic, the apostolic, the teacher, the administrator, is so that when each one of these people reads the Bible verse, every single one of them gets something different out of it. Um, and can sometimes sound like it's contradictory, but if they give each other time and space and talk through it, they actually find that is something I would have never found out by myself. You never would have figured that one out. But because you come out of it as a prophet, you saw this. And because you come at it as an administrator, you came at it like that. And now I'm getting a fuller picture of a Bible verse or a chapter or any particular idea of truth um, than I would have had I read it by myself. Which is why I think this Hope Reads thing is so great. Which, um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's a Facebook page and also an app where we're reading through the Bible in one year. Um, there's a few people. I'll just kind of point you towards Phil. Um, I hope he's okay with that. Um, if you are um, wanting to connect with that at all. Sorry, Phil. <laughs> but um, the idea then is we could park it here now. Okay, this is sounding a little less miserable than everything's relative and I'm going to go to the pub. I'm now, ooh, okay, this is lovey-dovey. Let's be nice to each other. I don't think the Bible parks it there either. I think it's closer than just getting very drunk at the pub because there's no meaning to life. But it's not quite the end of it. So I think the, the search of truth does require humility and a relationship with each other, as I've communicated. But the idea is also we are not just approaching truth but truth is approaching us. Truth is coming right at you all the time in your life. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The truth is a person. In Hebrew um, terms, uh, the word truth is often the word emet which is translated into truth. And emet actually denotes an action, not just an idea, not just a notion. You do truth. You don't just believe truth. So you actually go about actioning it out and operating in it and experiencing it. So this is really interesting because we talk about objective truth, don't we? We talk about truth being this thing, this item that I go to, I grab it, it doesn't change when I'm holding it, it's independent of what I do with it. It's absolute. 
But God is orchestrated in such a way that truth is something we experience subjectively. You will experience God very differently to how I experience God. Does that change God? No. But how we experience that absolute truth will vary. So that is because, as I say, truth is something you do, not just something you believe. So truth needs to be experiential, which is difficult because... If you've ever talked to someone who's had a mystical experience with God, trying to understand what they're talking about is pretty tricky. So there's an aspect of truth that is very hard to communicate, which is odd. So how do you go about... And in fact, if, if for all of you who've had mystical experiences, you'll know... In the process of explaining it, you're diminishing it. You're like, no, these words, it's a problem of language. It's that I'm explaining this. And no, this is not doing the experience any justice. I'm, it's so much bigger than the words that I'm using to share this concept and idea. So actually, communicate, trying to communicate this thing doesn't communicate it properly. But we do have over five to, well, help, let's, maybe a few uh, I won't give an exact number, a good thousand years worth of stories of mystical experiences that have been with our culture for many, many years in the form of the Bible. If there's nothing else that the Bible does is it gives us a beautiful way to communicate the very tricky experience of mysticism with God. Um, if you're wanting to communicate truth that is difficult to explain, the Bible's a great place to start because it gives you stories. Totally agree, pal. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Amen. Yes, preach it. Um, and yeah, so it, it's, a, it's a beautiful place to find stories that, it, that will elaborate on that for you. Bingo. So why, so I've, I've given you a lot of ideas and concepts and that sort of thing, which is nice and it's good and it, it stimulates conversation and maybe makes some of you feel a little bit drowsy. Um, but I, where, are, where are we gonna sit? Where am I gonna park this? I wanna park it with why is truth and trying to figure it out important. What's the point of it? I'll start off with something that maybe uh, is maybe a little less tangible, which is that truth is important because it is powerful and it has power. I don't know about you, but when we're worshiping, it's always the one, it's always the lines that like are true, yes, that get me gutturally. Um, it's also the same thing with stories. I'm a massive fan of Lord of the Rings. Um, I try and get it into every single main talk that I give. Um, I also have a little competition with my students where I try and get it into every single lecture. Um, I think they might be getting bored of it now. Um, I certainly am not. Um, but uh, there's a line, there are many, many. One of the reasons why I love Lord of the Rings is because it's packed with truth. 
um, and Frodo will go up to Gandalf and he'll say, oh, I, I, uh, I wish this had never happened to me. And Gandalf turns around and says to him, so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. They must simply decide what to do with the time that is given to them. It's like, preach it, Gandalf. <laughs> yes. Um, and it gets you. There's like, when you read a book, when you find something, wherever you go, there's a, a thing inside of you, there's a spirit inside of you that goes like, ooh, yes, I'm feeling fed. Uh, and it empowers you, it motivates you, it galvanizes you, it steps you out into action. If you're confronted with a truth, that's often the thing that will inspire you to do, because truth is a doing thing, not just a believing thing. The uh, Bible also tells us that the truth sets us free. Um, there's so many things that entangle us and restrict us uh, from doing the things that God has called us to. But a lightning bolt of truth, as um, Cheslav Miłosz said, is like a pistol shot that wakes us up. A big part of this as well is, and a third reason why it's important is because God is truth. And to actually become complacent with where you're at with life and your understanding of things and to become, to not want to search out what is right and wrong in a situation is actually to stop searching for God. Um, to abandon the search for truth is to abandon the search for God. But, fortunately, it's not a one-way street. God is searching for you. So truth is coming at you as well. So even if you drop the ball, even if you go for a few weeks, months, even years, um, abandoning your search for truth and just becoming complacent about things, God doesn't. He's still coming right at you. Jesus said he's the vine and we are the branches in John 15. Um, and so another reason why it's important that we engage and try and figure out what is true is because my perspective is going to be shaped into what I'm tapped into. What I think of something and what I do about a situation is going to be dictated by what I'm interacting with. And if I am tapped into something that is riddled with lies, then that's what's going to come out of me. Um, so it's so important that we're tapped into the vine. Um, the Hebrew word for face is often translated in English for presence. Um, and so when it talks about the presence of God in the Bible, it's often talking about the face of God and interacting with the face of God. If you're staring at the face of God then that is what you react to in your daily life. If I'm looking at my fears, and that's my vine, then that's what I'm going to react out of. Um, and then a, a lot of unhelpful stuff is going to come out of me. Um, what is the story I'm telling myself? What is the truth that I'm constantly telling myself? Either in my head or also out loud. In Britain, I, I moved here in 2008, and um, I've got English parents, if you're wondering where this accent's come from. Um, but 
one of the things I've noticed is that Brits, they enjoy their self-deprecating humor, which, you know, in a lot of ways, I love. It's great. It's fun. The problem is, is when the self-deprecating humor ceases to be human, becomes a defense mechanism, and you're actually saying it so that nobody expects anything big from you, or you don't need to expect anything big from yourself. And then you, you can see that a lot of people start saying stuff to themselves and over themselves. Um, and that's the stories they start to believe. Um, am I looking to myself, like Phil was saying uh, last week? Have I made myself the center of my own story? Or is God the center of my story? Um, it can be so easy to spend my time looking at me and how I react to God than actually looking at God. It's like, ah, oh, yes, I'm feeling warm and fuzzy now during worship. Ah, oh, I'm, I'm going to stare at this warm and fuzzy feeling for the next five minutes. Ooh, this is a great feeling to be staring at. Rather than, God, I'll look at you. Just keep on staring at you. And, you know, that is generally going to produce positive things inside of you as well. So seeking his face is a key part of seeking truth and vice versa. How are we doing for time? Cool. Is that, when am I supposed to finish? Half past? Yeah, so five minutes. Excellent. Bang on. Check it. Um, so, all of this, I think Jesus gave us what was quoted as a commandment um, but actually is the secret to finding truth, I think. Um, when somebody asked him, what do you think, what's the greatest commandment? And then he turned to the other person and said, well, what do you think? He would just like, well, I think it's all summed up in love your God above all things and love your neighbors yourself. I don't think that's just a commandment for, you know, following the will of God and for um, potentially making life difficult. But actually, I think that is the secret to finding truth. I think if you love your God above all things, you seek him, um, and you love your neighbor as yourself, you listen to your neighbor when you disagree with them, um, you are able to, as 1 Corinthians suggests, be fully known by God and by people who are closest to you. And you begin to open up a space of dialogue, a space of trust, and a space of connection where truth suddenly starts appearing in this whirlwind of intimacy. Um, and so I think the commandment to seek out God in all things that we do and to love him and to worship him in all things that we do will put us in a place where we seek out his intimacy and we seek out connection with him. And in so doing, we are having a constant conversation about what do you think of this situation? What do you think is going on here? What do you think is happening here? Um, what on earth was that experience? Ah, that looks quite similar to what Ezekiel did. Hmm, interesting. 
or going and then speaking to a good friend who you trust and who's also seeking God um, and delving deep into the greatest stories that we know and we have at our disposal. Um, the stories that give us a language for things that we don't necessarily always have a language for. Because English isn't that old and a- older language. Um, it's a lot younger than the Bible. Um, so the Bible gives us an ancient narrative that helps us understand some of the confusing aspects of truth. Right. Shall we pray to the Lord on time? I think we shall. Let's do that. Excellent. <sighs> Jesus, thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. <laughs> Thank you that you came down as a baby. Understandable. Touchable. Connectable. Relational human being. That we could see truth in its form. That you could speak to us in stories. And that you could come to reveal the Father's love to us that you have saved us from the quagmire of lies and the confusions of deceit and the suffering of death into a glorious, glorious life with you. That we get to pursue in this life a constant journey of truth. I just pray that you would bless this church, that we would, in our search for you, be blessed in our relationships and our friendships, that we would remain open and vulnerable, that we would search and seek together, And that we would keep the main thing, always the main thing, which is you. Thank you, Dad. Amen.